0: Hey, this is Keith. I'm the pastor of Blaze Church. Welcome to our podcast. I know today's message is going to inspire you, encourage you, and lead you to know God more. If you want to connect with us, visit us online at blazechurch.org. Enjoy today's message we are continuing really concluding a series called to my friend who left the faith to my friend who left the faith and for the past couple of weeks we've been exploring reasons why people either walk away from Jesus or they refuse to get started in believing in the risen savior. And in week one, uh, we discovered the content about hypocrisy. Who is here for that hypocrisy and how when we have grace amnesia, when we forget that God has saved us, that is a perfect pathway for you and I to become hypocrites. Because inevitably, when we forget that it's his grace that changes us, we start judging others. Last week, we talked about suffering and looked at the question, how can a good God allow evil, pain, and suffering to exist? And today, the subject matter is much easier. We are going to discover together if the resurrection actually happened or not. Pretty easy, right? I mean, we're going back 2,000 years ago. Did the resurrection of Jesus historically take place? Place So two questions we're going to ask, did it happen and what does it mean? Would you say that with me? Did it happen and what does it mean? Did it happen and what does it mean? I want to read you a quote. Tim Keller says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, if he did not, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue, and this is important, the issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, (laughs) but whether or not he rose from the dead. So I just want you to understand this morning, this is very important. This is not simply you came across a passage of Jesus's teaching and said, I don't agree with that. Okay. 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 Or you came across a part that's your favorite and you got it on a coffee mug or a t-shirt and you're like, I like that one. He got, he got the eyes on the lilies and the flowers and he sees me. I like that. It's not about whether you or I like his teaching. The question on which everything hangs is simply this. Did he rise from the dead or not? And if he did not, then all of it falls apart. Here's how a man named Paul puts it. 1 Corinthians 15, 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. Someone turn to someone and say, your faith might be useless. It might not matter. It may, it may not It's not simply about being a good person, about being a Christian, about being religious. I love when people tell me, well, that's easy for you, you're religious. I'm like, could you explain to me what that means? What does that mean, I'm religious? It's not about being religious or a Christian. This is everything. Did Christ rise from the dead or not? So today we are going to explore historical evidence that would point us in a direction that would prompt our minds to think. Aren't you glad when you came in, none of the welcome team said, please check your brain at the door. Today we're talking about the resurrection. You're going to need blind faith for this service. I want to show you historical evidence that will just prompt your mind and your heart to consider maybe the resurrection of Jesus makes the most sense. So we're going to get right into it. Does believing in the resurrection require blind faith, or can we actually use our minds with this? And here's another question. I'm going to throw a lot of questions at you, and we may answer one or none of them. Okay, so welcome to Blaze Church. Is it simply on the believer to prove the resurrection, or is this a human issue? Here's what I mean by that. If you don't believe that the resurrection of Jesus took place historically— Right, that's where you are today. You're maybe in church for the first time, or you've never considered this. You may be an atheist. Where, whatever your belief is, if you don't believe the resurrection of Jesus took place historically, like as an event in human history, the burden is equally on you as it is with those who believe it took place. To answer, well, then what? Yeah. Meaning. You don't get a pass by just saying, well, I just can't believe that happened. You can state that, but if that's your viewpoint, you then need to offer a historically feasible explanation for the birth of the church in the first century under a Roman empire. Like you need something historic. Does that make sense? I know it's a little lofty in its language. Well, we're going to explore some historical evidence today. But what I want us to start with is this. It's not enough to just say, well, I just can't believe the resurrection happened because that's just crazy. Okay, well then tell me what did happen in the first century that caused a group of people to abandon their age-old Jewish traditions and embrace a new worldview. Tell me what did happen that caused a new way of life to emerge under a Roman empire that ruthlessly stopped out anyone and anything that did not say, hail Caesar, Lord of Lords, and yet somehow it emerged and exploded. Like, just offer me then what would happen. So think, everyone say, use your, use your brain. Just use your brain. And that's not to be mocking. That's genuine. I think the, the tension often rises. Well, if I become a Christian, then I can no longer think. I have to just accept things blindly. No, today we want to explore some historical evidence. And here's why, because we all live by faith. So if you don't believe in the resurrection, you do believe in something else. This is not, I don't have enough faith to believe in the resurrection. The question is, where is your faith pointed? Because if you don't believe that Christ came back from the dead, then you believe in something else. And of course, that is your prerogative and mine as well. What I would like to do today is I want to read some historical text with you. Now, we are going to read from what many in this room, if you are a follower of Christ, call scripture. But I would also like you to consider that what many call scripture, historians and scholars call historical evidence. Okay, so we're gonna read from what I fully believe in here at Blaze Church. If you're wondering, "Uh uh-oh, does this church not believe in the inspired and authoritative word of God? We do as believers But outside of a circle of believers, this text is scrutinized by historians and historians say what we're about to read, this is so cool. This is why you should read your Bible. This is so cool. Your Bible contains dated material from the 50s. I'm not talking about the 1950s. I'm Talking about the 50s. No numbers in front of it, 50s. That's cool. You should read your Bible just because of that. I mean, we have manuscripts, thousands of manuscripts. Some of you have no problem believing a professor that tells you to read Homer and the Iliad, and there's maybe five or four copies of those. And we say, no, that's fine. New Testament has thousands of dated copies of original manuscripts saying, this is when we know it was written. The Bible's cool. That's pretty cool. So, and it gets better. We're gonna read something That historians agree was written by a man named Paul, who no one debates existed in time and space. That Paul was Saul of Tarsus, who persecuted the church, was a Pharisee. Again, this is historical information. That somehow something happened to a man named Saul who was dead set on stopping the church. He becomes a radical believer, starts churches writes letters to churches, and one of his writings are preserved for us today. And historians say this could not have been written anywhere past 57 AD, which dates his writing 15 to 20 years after the supposed resurrection of Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. That is very early evidence. And in his writing... He writes, not his own words that he comes up with. He actually quotes what historians say is the first apostolic creed of the church, which was said somewhere between 32 and 37 AD. So watch all this, don't lose the dates. A man named Paul hears the creed because he's still alive. It's passed on to him. In fact, the first words he says is, I received what was passed on to me. This creed that the church starts reciting Instantly after the resurrection of Christ, it's preserved for us and historians say this has been dated as material, as being accurate. So now the debate is, is what they're saying as a creed real or is it just made up? But there's no one that debates this is the dated content. That's pretty cool. So let's see what they said. Five to seven years after the resurrection, 15 to 20 years, Paul pens it down for us, so that in 2023, he knew a group of good looking people. Come on, we're gonna get together and they were gonna open this text. And here's what he writes For I deliver to you as of first importance. He says this one's really important. I've written a lot, this is first importance. What I received, here's what Paul, formerly known as Saul of Tarsus, received. And historians and and theologians say he probably received it during his conversion when he had three years visiting Damascus and Jerusalem. The saints there gave him this. Hey, hey Paul, now that you're one of us, this is what we say when we have church, okay? This is what we say. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Can you see how it kind of sounds like a creed? Like, that's why historians say this. It's written in a way, this poetic, in accordance with the scriptures, in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12th. Another indicator that it's early on because Cephas is the Aramaic for the Greek name Peter. Everybody know your boy Peter? Walked on water, drowned for a little bit. Jesus saved him, Peter. Denied Jesus and then came back, Peter. That's Cephas. Why are they calling him Cephas? Oh, because it's early material and internally they're speaking Aramaic to one another. It's just cool. Then to the 12th, then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Now, well, just wake them up. That's a kind of way of saying they dead. Okay, just, some died, but most of whom. Now, why would Paul say most of whom are still alive? That that kind of calls his bluff. If this is made up, because if you're telling me Jerry was there and Jerry's still alive. I'm gonna go ask Jerry about this. And Paul's kind of inviting you to do, do you see that in the text? He's kind of putting his cards on the table. Like, if you think this is made up, go talk to some that are still alive. Most of them are. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, he writes, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And that entirety, minus verse eight, when Paul now starts writing, to verse 7, that is the creed that the church would say. Like he was born, he was raised, buried, resurrected, appeared to all. They would just remember. Remember when he appeared to Cephas? Remember when he appeared to the apostles? Remember when he appeared to the 500? Remember when he appeared to James? So, historical text, I personally believe it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, that God's the author and men held the pen. But let's consider the evidence this morning. So I want to kind of introduce you to a couple groups of people and a couple individuals that we just read about. And the first are the Jewish people, right? We said that he appeared to the twelve, to Cephas. Cephas is Jewish. And Peter, uh, rather, the, the disciples were Jewish as well. So <laughs> this is interesting. We kind of sit here in 2023 with our smartphones and our computers and NASA. And we're like, we're so smart, And that's why, of course, in the first century, it was easy for them to believe in the resurrection. It was just easier for them. I would offer this to you this morning. It was hard for people in the first century to believe In fact, I want to show you that it may have been harder for certain groups of people that existed to believe. We can kind of sit here and say, well, we are evolved, we've had the enlightenment, you know, we are advanced now. And do you know what C.S. Lewis calls that? He coins this term of what that is. He calls it chronological snobbery. (laughs) That we look back in time and somehow think, well, in the 21st century, we are beyond the miraculous. We know that that can't happen because we have just evolved as a society and it's chronological snobbery to look back on our ancestors and somehow think that their brains were worse than ours. What evidence do you pro- provide for that? That your brain is somehow better than the brain of someone? I ain't gonna try to compete with Leonardo da Vinci and the greats, what their brains weren't good 500 years ago? We got better brains because we can design a cell phone? So at what point then does chronological snobbery stop to say, oh, this is when humanity got smart enough to reject things like the miraculous? Well, think about the first century. Maybe you don't know who existed at the time. There was really two groups of people. And scripture often calls them Jews and Gentiles, but the Gentiles were simply those who were not Jewish. And in a Roman empire, we can break it down this way. There is the Greco-Roman world and there's the Jewish world. So there's the Greco. So what would a Greco-Roman believer, someone who believed in polytheism or something outside of the God of Judaism say, if you were to go up to them and say, did you hear there's been a resurrection? Well, they would say that's undesirable. And here's why. In their teaching as a Greco-Roman, the soul was beautiful, but the body in the physical world was kind of less than. It was torturous. The primary goal for someone was to escape the body, to escape this world and become a soul with the gods. So if you tell someone who's a Greco-Roman, there's been a resurrection, their only answer is that is undesirable or that is punishment that somebody came back to their body. There's no context for it. Now, what about Jews? First century Jews did not believe in a singular one person resurrection. They only believed in a collective resurrection for Jewish people only at the end of time. So if you went up to your Jewish friend and say, did you hear so-and-so has been resurrected? They would respond with something like this. That's crazy. I, I don't see all disease ceasing. I don't see the wolf laying down with the lamb yet. We are still under Roman regime. You must be out of your mind. They had no context for a singular resurrection. I just want you to see that we can't sit here today and say, oh, of course they believe Jesus rose from the dead. It was easy for them. It was normal for them. People resurrected all the time. Their belief system supported it. No, it didn't. And if you think that everybody in the first century simply accepted the resurrection testimony as truth, Matthew, an early gospel writer, almost to a disadvantage, writes this. Matthew twenty-eight seventeen. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. So again, we read this today, 2,000 years later, and it makes sense to us, but this is early writing that's going to be passed around to try and influence people to believe in Jesus. Why is Matthew writing that some people doubted? That doesn't help. He writes it because it's true. This actually proves that the disciples just wrote what was true. If they were making up a myth, you omit that part. You don't give people an out. By the way, if you don't get this, neither did your neighbor. (laughs) They didn't believe, and they saw him. This is post-crucifixion. Yet, others worshipped. Something happened, and a group of people saw something that caused them to abandon their Jewish ways, if they were Jewish, their Gentile ways, if they were Gentile, to embrace Christianity at a time when it was not advantageous to become a Christian, It meant that you would suffer. It meant that you would ultimately be martyred. It meant that you would be cast out of what was normal. People, people change their ways. Something caused this. We read what? It wasn't just for an individual, but there was a collective. It says, then he appeared to more than 500, say 500. 500. More than 500 brothers at one time. Most of whom are still alive though some have fallen asleep. So you may be familiar with one of the debates of the hallucination theory that says, well, people just thought they saw Jesus because their grief, their sorrow caused them to see Jesus. And yet the president of psychology association says collective hallucination is simply preposterous. You can't have collective hallucination. Hallucinations take place individually, but I can't get a group of people to collectively hallucinate the exact same thing. Now, we could all hallucinate our own things with a little help from illicit things (laughs) and be in the same room together. But to hallucinate the same thing, today, we just say that just can't hold up. 500 people saw him at the same time, most of whom are still alive. And Paul is just inviting the readers in the first century and us, we can't today, but to say, just, just go ask them, go talk to them about it. They, they were there. So we have so many listings of Jesus sightings post resurrection, like moments where people wrote down, here's where I saw him. And I'm not going to read all of these to you, but we'll throw up the next slide and you'll see why it's kind of tiny font just to get it all to fit on one slide. But the resurrected Jesus is recorded as appearing in And if you really want some study this week, take a picture. And you can go into historical text and see when he appeared in Judea and Galilee, in town, in the country, indoors, outdoors, the morning, the evening. People just, they wrote. They're like, this is when I saw him. Scripture tells us for 40 days, he was appearing to people. So he's just just appearing. He's just appearing to people. But let's talk specifically now about a couple people he appeared to. We read in verse 7, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. He appeared to James. Who is this James that Paul speaks of here? Does anybody know? His brother. His his half brother, some might say. This is James born of Joseph and Mary, the brother of Jesus. Now, James did not always believe his brother was the Messiah. And you know why? What would your brother have to do to convince you that he was from God? And the answer is resurrect. This is my brother. If he predicts his own death and resurrection, I will follow everything he says. At that, I mean... What would your brother have to do to convince you? Nothing. And and if you don't believe this, this is recorded for us. His family did not believe he was the Messiah. They didn't believe it. In fact, we read in Mark that at one point he is teaching people about God. And here's what Mark writes from us. And when his family heard it, that's brother James, they went out to seize him. For they were saying he is out of his mind. Now I know they're Jewish, but I think there's a little Italian in there. He's embarrassing the family. He's not holding up the family name well. He's out of his mind. His brother didn't just believe because he was his brother. If anything, that was more reason for him not to believe. Yeah. I saw you when you got in trouble with mom. <laughs> you ain't perfect. You were in timeout too. We had snack together. You told me you were going to walk on water in the pool. You didn't. You fell. Give him a few years. He didn't didn't just believe it. But then we read in Acts, the fifth book of the New Testament, that brother James becomes a pillar in starting the first century church. What made you switch from he's out of his mind to ultimately... James is martyred for his faith in his brother? In fact, this is so cool. This is why you should read your Bible. There's a book in the Bible called James, written by this James, and here's how he starts his writing James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. What moves you to now say, He's not my brother, I'm his servant? And I mean, he could have started off with some authority for his own name to get his work out there, right? Like I'm the brother of Jesus, listen to me. He doesn't at all. He takes the position of I'm a servant to my master. Something had a click. Something had to change. He had to have seen something and what the early church says in 32 to 37 AD that Paul writes no later than 57 AD is he appeared to James. James saw his brother resurrected and it changed everything. So the church starts, it grows in the first century. People are changing their beliefs. And I just ask you what historically feasible explanation can you provide for this? If not the resurrection of Jesus, but there's one more person in this text. It's Paul himself because he said, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And I want to ask you to read this with me. I think if the early church read it as a creed, can we just say this part together after the dot dot? So let's start with that. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. We'll stop there. He, he goes to the creed. He goes to the creed. He received it. And what does the creed tell us? It tells us three things He died, He was buried, and He rose. He died, He was buried, and He rose. The gospel. Notice though, it doesn't just say He died, it says He died for what? For our sins. If Jesus simply died, do you know what we have? A zealot religious teacher and, and anyone can do that and there are many religions where the religious leader eventually dies but the religious leader doesn't die for the sins of its followers and the religious leader doesn't get buried and come back to life Christianity is so unique in that we don't simply have a great teacher we have an atoning substitute he is both our example and and our substitute. He dies for our sins. Here's what John, another person who was radically changed by the resurrected savior writes: He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. How many are grateful today that he didn't just die for you. He died for your children, your family, your friends, (laughs) the people that may not know him yet. That's grace. And when we forget that we become hypocrites he died for the sins of the whole world. Christ was buried. He was, in fact, they know, they saw he was buried in a tomb. And, and when he was buried, he was dead, dead. Okay? Not mostly dead. Princess bride, where are we at? Yeah. To blaze. Right? It's not just mostly dead. He was dead, dead. Verified by people who perfected killing. The Romans perfected killing. They did not pull him off that cross knowing he was not dead, dead. And to ensure it, they put a spear under him. Blood and liquid flows out. He was dead, dead, thrown into a tomb. He, He was not mostly dead. And he rose. And here's what that means. Jesus is resurrected. Now that's different than Jesus being resuscitated. Here's why. Resuscitated people die again. Lazarus died again. The little girl died again. Even Peter resuscitated somebody at some point. But a resuscitation still ends in death. The believer has the hope of an eternal resurrection Jesus is resurrected, which means he did not enter that tomb again. And here's the promise. Here's why we need a resurrected Savior and not a resuscitated Savior. To have a resurrected Savior means that he is with us now. Matthew 28, 20, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I, I wonder if maybe some of us in some way are following a resuscitated Savior because we're not living as if he's with us always. We're not living out the power of the Holy Spirit. We're still trapped by sin. It's still crushing your life. When the resurrected Savior is Lord of your life, there is no more place for sin in your life. There's only two claps on that. Thank you, Dave. And if you're in men's group, he'll finish clapping on Wednesday. Bring it. Too often, we believe in our hearts in a resurrected Savior, but we live out as if we're living for a resuscitated Savior that has no power over the sin that has you trapped. You are not created to be a slave to sin. You are a new creation in Christ. And if you're justifying your sin by saying, well, God understands. Yeah, he understands that you weren't created for it. And he alone has the power to set you free because the resurrected Savior overcame death, hell, and the grave so that you don't have to live bound up anymore. Don't follow a resuscitated Savior. You can find that in other religions. You can find other religious teachers. A resurrected Savior, I am with you always. There is no end to my presence with you. And Paul knew that. Paul understood how the resurrected Savior changes a life. He says, for I am the least of the apostles. I do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Do you imagine what Paul's life must have been like knowing that he heard the screams of Christians as he dragged them out of their homes to have them tortured and executed? that's a part of his story. And that the resurrected Savior appears to him and does a work. And Paul no longer has to carry the guilt and the shame of the past because he's been freed and delivered. It's why he writes next. And look at how many times he says this word. But by the grace, say grace. Grace. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, say grace. Grace. To me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace, say it one more time. Of God that was with me. Paul's testimony is this grace, grace, grace. <laughs> Some of you, you are still living trapped by the story of last year, of yesterday, of ten years ago. You are still marked that the wound of failure or betrayal has made. That you you did something wrong in your past, yes. But you are not to be identified by that any longer because of the grace of God you, stay, you still may need to carry out the consequences of it it's just reality okay God doesn't remove the consequences of our horizontal choices you choose to betray your family and marriage there's a consequence but your identity is not betrayer divorce person scarlet letter rather you are a child of God marked by grace you're marked by his grace Paul, Paul, more than any of us would understand that. He didn't go around saying, oh, hi, I'm Paul, former persecutor of the church. Hi, I'm Paul. I executed people. You know, I'm still working through it. Still figuring it out. Sometimes I slip up and I just kill somebody. Grace, grace, grace. Yes. Stop being defined by what defined you for a season. If you are made new in Christ, you are a new creation. That's why the resurrection matters. Did it happen? Well, I'm presenting some evidence and you have to pick through it. What does it mean? It means that you and I have been made new. Here's why we need a resurrected savior. Paul goes on. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So if you don't believe in resurrection, then that savior that you're attempting to follow is still dead. Like you you have to embrace this. Remember what we started with. It's not about the teaching. It's about, did he come back to life? And if Christ has not been raised, is what we read earlier, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And don't miss this, you are still in your sins. If we don't have a resurrected savior, then we are nothing more than sinners and not sinners saved by grace, just sinners. We need the resurrection. Then also those who have fallen asleep. Remember, that's the kind way of saying he dead. Those that have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. So there's no hope. There's no hope to just say, well, I just know one day I'm going to see them again. No, not if Christ isn't raised. You don't get to say that. And if only for this life, I mean, this is where he is just pulling out all the stops. And if only for this life, we have hope in Christ, we are of all all people most to be pitied. Do you see how urging his words are? If we only have hope now, if Jesus only came to give us a good life now, we should be pitied more than any other group of people. Here's here's what I wrote. If Christ is not alive, then neither am I. If he's not alive, then I'm dead in my sins. So he ends it this way. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, what Christ experienced as the first of the resurrection, we are looking forward to in the resurrection of all believers someday. It's the hope. It's the first fruit. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ we will all be made alive. This is the hope of the resurrection. So this is why the the resurrection touches our minds and it changes our hearts. It causes us to think and consider. But if all we do is have debate over whether or not it's real and it took place and it doesn't change here, then it's just intellect. Christ came to make you new. The reign of darkness now has ended in the kingdom of light. He reigns above it all. He paid the price. He overcame death. What you have in the chair in front of you or front row, you have it on your seat is The Case for Easter by Lee Strobel. Today, we are selling these for three easy payments of (laughs) $9.99. Thank you for laughing. This is yours to take. You're like, dang, what kind of a church is this? I knew it. That boy didn't pass the plate because it's coming. It's coming. I told you it's coming. This is yours, and here's why, because Radical Generosity already paid for this. In fact, some of you already paid for this, or your neighbor did. If you give every single week, thank you, so we can provide a resource. So this is for you to read and to consider, and it's not, it's not a lofty read. I read this in an hour and a half. It's, it's a great read. And it's for you to read and keep, or maybe read and share with somebody. Now, Christians, I need you to look at me right now. Every, if you're a Christian, I need eyes up here, eyes on me. i Blaze Kids. Today's message was not about putting ammunition in your clip. Today's message was not so that you can go debate your lost friends. Today's message was not so you can put up a Facebook post later. And if you do, don't you dare tag Blaze Church. We will tag it down. Today's message was to stir you to start thinking so that you can be kind, patient, and loving because your lost friends and family need someone who will listen to them and maybe respond with a question or two or meet them halfway and say, you know what? I have the same doubts. In fact, my church just talked about those doubts. You have a church that talks about doubts? Yes. Please. That was my, my, one of my prayers was, God, may we not mobilize an army of angry Christians from this message, ready to go and defend the faith. Jesus doesn't need you to defend him. He overcame the grave on his own without your help. He doesn't need you to defend him. He calls you to love people. Because no one is argued to the cross. It is his kindness that leads to repentance. So, yes, read this and pray. And at the end of this, you should have the same testimony as Paul grace, grace, grace. So, the table of candy. Let's talk. The table of candy is not for you, it's for your friends. And there are cards out there for you to give to your friends. So please don't head out the door. And I know there's, there's going to be a line. There's a lot of people in this room right now. And there's a whole lot that are waiting to come in at 11 o'clock. But that doesn't mean you pass by that table. On that table are Easter invite cards to our three services And there's two different designs. There's one that's really made for families. So if you have kids or your families, your friends have kids, there's one that talks about the Easter party and and all of that. And there's one that's a little more generic for everybody, but there's bags back there. So either fill up a bag of candy, not for you to eat on the way home, (laughs) but for you to give to a friend. You may say like, oh, I know my friend loves jelly beans. I'm gonna grab a little pack and a little card to give to them. I, I know they like this candy. Take some time. Pray about the person you're going to give it to. Put some invite cards in that bag. Why? Because the resurrected Savior died for them. And now you get to lovingly invite them to know Jesus. What a privilege. So I want to pray for us. Would would you bow your heads now and open your hands before the Lord? I want to pray that we would be mobilized to be a people who love well. Father, I thank you for your word that is so beautiful, so life-giving, so prompting to our hearts and our minds. And thank you that there were men and women who saw your son resurrect and that this text was preserved for us all these years later. Lord, thank you that our story is grace, grace, grace. And I pray now that we would be a church that is ready to go and share the story of Jesus with others, ready to invite friends and family members to Easter Sunday services where they will encounter the resurrected Savior as we have. I pray that every card that is taken goes exactly where you know it's going to go and that the recipient has a soft heart. Thankful. I pray that our church would be filled with kind, loving, patient followers of Christ and say, I I know what I believe and I want to listen to my friends as they talk about what they believe in. Give us those moments where we can point people to Jesus. Thank you for this resource by Lee Strobel. May it stir our hearts and our minds. And thank you for this time in your presence. In your name we pray, amen. 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 Maybe today your story is not grace, grace, grace. Maybe you have yet to put your faith in Jesus. You have yet to call in his name. I want to ask you right now, if you want to know Jesus as your savior, we are going to pray as a church and the power is not in the prayer. The power is in the savior. But we want to provide words for you because this may be the first time you've ever prayed. So if this is what, you you want him to be your savior, you're saying, I need a resurrected savior to save me. I no longer want to be dead in my sins. As we pray, Romans 9 says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised Christ from the dead, you will be saved. As we pray, you're saying, I want to know, Jesus, would you raise your hand to the Lord to say, God, here I am. I surrender my life to you. And we're going to pray as a church. Church, say this with me, heavenly father. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead so I could be saved. Today I surrender my life. Thank you for changing me. In Jesus name. Amen. Church let's celebrate with all of heaven that's rejoicing as lost people are coming to know God.